Thanks for visiting the Arrogance of Infinity podcast. Every tale is based on a real-life story. Every moral has lived and died a billion times. Tonight's tale is from the collegiate years, 1980 specifically. It's a tale of sacrifice and adventure and conquest and the most versatile smile in the world. Part 31, The List. In October of 1980, 72 young men were competing for 48 seats on a jet airliner that would fly the Augsburg College football team from Minneapolis-St. Paul's Old Chamberlain Field to Denver's Stapleton. The old airport, not their new one, that's halfway back to Minneapolis. The 48 winners would dress in blue sport coats, the coaches in Augie Maroon. They'd fly off to the Mile High City, then march down to Colorado Springs to face the Tigers of Colorado College. During the tour of duty and purpose, the Augies would parade with the disciplined cadets of the Air Force Academy, ascend to the heights of Pikes Peak, and commune at the Garden of the Gods. I was one of the 72 competitors, and far from a star, but a surefire bet to be on that plane. The roster had me on every special team, and I'd travel to every away game for the 1980 version of the Division Three football team, including the school's biggest win in 50 years, a 21-10 victory at the homecoming of powerhouse St. John's University. I was the wedge buster on the kickoff squad, one who sacrificed his body, sideways if necessary, to occupy as many of the three blockers as possible when they set up to protect the return man. On the kick and punt return teams, I was semi-deep and one of the two guys who would try to pick off the opposing wedge buster. On the punt defense team, I was the outside guy who sprinted toward the point of the kicker's release once again sacrificing my body in a desperate diving attempt to block the punt. As Scott Severson, a really tall guy, went simultaneously up the middle with the same objective. Posting of the Colorado Springs travel roster after Tuesday's practice would make it official. Me and Seaver would be going after some mile-high punts. Blue sport coats were required, so the chosen 48 could project a unified image of respect and character. We were young men venturing off to a foreign land in defense of the virtue of our institution and home state. Jerry Rezac didn't have a jacket, but I had two. I loaned him one and most certainly would be wearing the other. The question was how much playing time I would get. In addition to being a mainstay on the special teams, I was number two on the depth chart at my defensive back position. The rank was a bit dubious, however, and I was behind all-conference guy named Bob Dorgan, who was three inches taller, two steps faster, could jump higher, and grow a one-day beard that would take me a semester. But even all-conference guys need rest, so I was hopeful. Augsburg, a small, frugal institution of austere Lutheran heritage at the time, rarely 
broke into the piggy bank for such exotic travel. So flying in an airplane to an outstate contest gave us humble sons of stoic faith a tiny taste of big-time athletics. Making the travel roster was a huge deal, but nary a worry for me. I didn't even bother to check the list. My buddy, an eventual best man, Mike Chief Widener, however, was on the bubble. The eight and a half by eleven piece of copy paper was hand typed through ribbons of ink and carried into the locker room by an assistant trainer who usually dragged bags of stinky laundry. On the on this fateful Tuesday evening, he carried the writ with divine purpose and posted it, like Martin Luther nailing up the Protestant treatise at Wittenberg with a piece of white sports tape on a brick wall. After practice, bubble guys like Chief would gather their courage and mosey over one at a time to take a hopeful peek. He returned with a scrunched up face and shaking his head. Didn't make it, huh? I said with a consoling disappointment. I was going to miss having him on the trip. Nope, he said. Didn't think I would. But that ain't it. What ain't it? Uh, pick. You ain't on the list either. I laughed. Chief and I would eventually be the team's unofficial hazing captains. Not crazy Ivy League rituals. Just ridiculous, spontaneous pranks on freshmen. So his gag was transparently lame. Yeah, right, I scoffed. But he kept it up and was either doing his best acting ever or being sincere. Sorry, man. I ain't kidding. Go check it out. I gave him one of those, Oh, all right, I'll bite, look, and walked toward the treatise now only half as confident as a moment before. The list was alphabetical. Naaman, Quam, Rezac, Roth. Wait a second. Naaman, Quam, Rezac, Roth. Naaman, Quam, Rezac, Roth. No picket, no picket, no picket. I processed four of the five stages of mourning. Denial, anger, Bargaining, depression, within a minute. There has to be a mistake. How the hell does so-and-so get to go, but not me? Now I'll go talk to Ozzy. He'll set it straight. What if he doesn't? I was angry, sad, confused, and embarrassed. It was no stage five. No acceptance. The bubble guys who'd seen the list and probably also thought I was going, just looked into their lockers as I passed. Chief did his best to console me. Hey, man, look at the bright side. We'll have a few days off, and there'll be less competition for the women. It didn't work. I was already wondering how I'd break the news to Pop and the family and to my co-workers at the publishing company where I was a popular assistant mail clerk who was living a college lifestyle worthy of their imaginations. I didn't have to go bargain with Ozzy, Coach Jack Osberg. 
he sought me out. Picker, as he called me. Come here. I need to talk to you. Jack Osberg is a player's coach and a coach's coach. He's a man's, a woman's, and a child's man. He's gracious, full of faith, and humble to purpose. He can be tough as a kidney stone as a competitor, soft as cream cheese and a kolache as a husband, friend, dad, or grandpa. Jack has a frequent, unbalanced sort of smile that he constantly talks through and uses to express a plethora of emotions, from joy and candor to warning. He's a field general and a social worker, social worker who is perpetually positive and, at 80 years old, the former high school science teacher still coaches and remains idle and mentor to hundreds. The only time I broke down at my father's memorial service in 2013 was when he and his wife Nina walked through the door. He needed to talk to me about Ward Miller. Our football team, like most Division Three teams, was loaded with tough characters who could be gentlemen and the meanest bastards you ever met on a field of competition. D3 athletes are among the best in their high school conferences, but 98% of us didn't possess quite enough skill to earn scholarships at the big-time schools. Ward Miller fit into the gentleman category. He wasn't particularly fast or strong, and certainly not mean. He was studious, polite, and reliable as rain. He never missed a practice in four years and never cracked a starting lineup. He was the consummate practice player and invaluable to the team's success. Jack explained Ward Miller to me and said that's why they were taking him, rather than me, to Colorado. His trip is about more than a football game picker, he said. It's an extension of the collegiate experience. It's an opportunity to thank the seniors for their sacrifice and commitment. Your time will come. I couldn't help but understand. A trip on an airplane to play a football game was too good to be true anyway. I felt like I blocked a punt and got called for being offsides. The acceptance, the acceptance of stage five began to creep into my heart, but left plenty of room for a selfish pout. The next day, at a no-pads dry-run practice, the coaches called out the kickoff team for a simulated run-through of responsibilities. Ten guys ran onto the field. Cripes all Friday. That's ten. Where the hell is our wedge man? Coach Al Kloppen hollered. Jesus, let's go, Pickett. Seventy-two players and eight coaches went silent. The heads turned to me. I'm not on the travel roster. I shouted back with part explanation, part accusation. I agreed with the coach's decision and was even happy for Ward. None of this was his doing. But the moment had a sting of rubbed-in public embarrassment. Al paused, gathered himself, then muttered, Oh, uh, yeah, Bobby, jump in there. Let's go. There's no way you'd put a lanky all-conference safety known for savvy finesse like Bob Dorgan 
into that reckless role of human sacrifice. But Al did some quick thinking and picked a name he knew was on the list to move beyond the unpleasant pause as quickly as possible. My locker was front and center in the locker room. I sat on a metal folding chair and began to peel off athletic socks and some of the disappointment as I felt unstated empathy from Colorado travelers, bubble guys, and no-chance freshmen alike. One of the team's best smartasses, top locker room personalities, and a starting offensive tackle named Dean Hattenberger completely broke the ice as he walked past. Well, that was fucking awkward, he belted out for all to hear, then rubbed my head like he was Wally and I'm the beaver. Cheer up, Pick. You'll live. His reference to the 800-pound emotional gorilla further lightened the mood. Guys chuckled, and whatever compassion was in the room helped me inch closer to full acceptance. As we dressed and straggled out of the locker room, Ozzy approached me again. Picker, I need to talk. I cut him off with closed eyes and a shake of my head. It's okay, coach. I'm all right. Everything's good. Jack put his hands on my shoulders. No, I need to talk to you, he said, through a good news version of that smile. My would-be punt-blocking partner, Scott Severson, played high school ball at Northfield, Minnesota, in the same conference as me, the mighty Minnesota. Unlike Hattenberger, the Quam brothers, John the Crab Jaruszewski, or Dave Flip Wilson, lit up rooms with energy. Guys like Seaver, Tim Went, Joe Wabner, and Mike Dick were, were the low-key types who piped in occasionally with one-liners. Seaver was eminently likable, and his notoriously mellow demeanor disguised a deeper quality previously unknown to me. Picker, you're going to Chicago, Ozzy said. Rewind. Picker, you're going to Colorado, Ozzy said. Round up a blue sports coat and be here at 5.45 tomorrow morning. Nellie, trainer Doug Nelson, is packing your gear. Departure was less than 12 hours away. I was stunned. I was still processing acceptance. What? Seaver, Jack said. He's injured and can't play. I was horrified they put Scott and pulled him off of the list. Yeah, but he's a senior. He should still get to go, I begged. Jack explained. Scott came into the coach's office tonight and said, No, I'm, no way I'm going to go stand on the sidelines in street clothes. While Pick is sitting here at home, send him in my place. Not dead yet. Add another emotion. I was overwhelmed and wanted to cheer and leap to throw my fist in the air. But a sense of guilt and unworthiness crept into my heart. No, 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 I said. Seaver deserves to go. He can't do that. I can't. I can't. I was saying words I had to say and deep down believed but deeper down, 
didn't want to. Seaver can't do that, I repeated. He did and it's done, Jack said. Put on a blue coat, be on that bus. By now he was talking through a new smile. This one expressed pride in the character of one young man and joy for the opportunity it transferred to another. The next morning at 6 o'clock a.m., a motor coach idled outside the 1960s Bauhaus bricks of Sigurd Melby Athletic Hall on the Augsburg campus. The building was dedicated on the day I was born and was, obviously, a predestined point of departure. The bus was full of proud young men in blue sport coats, including the one I loaned Jerry Rezac. At 6.08, it departed for Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport without Scott Severson and without me. The alarm on my plastic desk clock wasn't set to ring for another 10 hours and 52 minutes at 5 o'clock p.m. on October 16, 1980. It was a simple oversight, an easily understood sophomore mistake. Senior Ward Miller was on time and on board, as he had been 500 times in a row. My mind was instantly suspicious when the eyes opened without alarm. It's amazing how many thoughts and emotions a human brain can process in less than a second. Why did I wake up without an alarm? What day is it? What time? This is the biggest day of my life. Please tell me it's 4.50 in the morning. It was 5.48 and I lived off campus, at least 20 minutes west of Mr. Melby's hall. Smiling Jack flashed in my mind. And yet another variation. A, con a confounded look, accompanied by a boom of his signature question when young men were making simple oversights. What in the Sam Hill is going on here? I trembled with fears of his disappointment, of reducing Seaver's selfless act to dust, of missing the greatest experience that a second-rate, small-time athlete could ever expect. I was dead in the water, but couldn't give up. I pulled on the blue coat, then paused at my dresser long enough to run through a checklist. Keys, wallet, ID, toothbrush, go! Traveling was less complicated in 1980. It's also amazing how strategic a human brain can become in the midst of panic. I grabbed my bag of clothes and sprinted out the door. I'll go to Cy Melby just in case they're setting us up and the bus wasn't really leaving till 6.30. If it's not there, I'll peel out to the airport with one of those shortcuts the South Minneapolis guys showed me. I'll park in the car and, and then figure out how to pay for it later. If the plane hasn't left, I'll throw myself at Jack's feet and beg for merciful forgiveness of this heinous, irresponsible, disrespectful act. I'll offer up a false promise and never again screw up a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. A duffel bag thumped my back with each stride of a sprint through the parking garage and up the steps, two, sometimes three at a time. I emerged into the cavernous terminal to people scurrying like ants into long lines that led to airline agents staring at screens and typing in endless sequence. 
I begged a uniformed airport employee where I might find the Augsburg football team. What? Where are they going? The man asked. Colorado, I begged. We're going to play a football game at Colorado. Bunch of college kids in coats? He interrupted. Yes, yes. They left, he said. Oh, shit. He pointed through large plate glass windows. The team and coaches were loitering at drop-off outside the terminal. It was two hours to lift off, and the ominous 6 a.m. deadline had morphed into a listless crowd of bored young men in uncomfortable clothes awaiting adventure. I was relieved and thankful, but still had to make things right with a humble plea to Coach Osberg. He saw me swimming through the blue coats, and gave another alliteration of a mentor smile as he shook his head. This one was welcoming and implied. You don't do anything the easy way, do you? Hey, Picker, good to see you. I knew you'd figure it out. I'd won the surefire bet and made the list, after all. I lived the trip that ended up being great, but more epic in memory than it was in real time. The respectful young men of character dutifully endured a three-hour cog railway ride up and down a mountain. One of us tried to commandeer a souvenir jersey from the Air Force Academy's locker room. We all passed anonymously through a closed room till it reappeared. We chanted, No, Garden of the Gods, together, till the, co- till the coaches gave up on the tour to let us go back play cards, or wander the heights of Colorado Springs. The 48 played well on a perfect day. It was sunny and beautiful at a mountaintop stadium, and we defeated the Tigers 27-10. I had the first tackle of the game by dodging the wedge altogether and nailing the return man at the 12-yard line. They moved Ward Miller up to number two for the day and he got some long-awaited playing time. Jack Osberg walked the sidelines as time expired with a smile that quantified Miller's ends, justified Seaver's means, and reminded me that all's well that ends well, and, with faith, all ends well.